Thank you. Thank you, Gail. Matthew chapter 26. Be praying for OCC this week again. As I said, it's a very special week. Matthew 26, this is a um, section of Matthew. Uh, we finished chapters 24 and 25, a course called the Olivet Discourse. This is the last section of Matthew of this gospel, chapters 26 through 28. And we are going to see the arrest, the crucifixion, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, chapter 25 marked the end of the teaching and preaching ministry of Jesus. So as we begin in chapter 26, which happens to be the longest chapter in Matthew's gospel, we read, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that is the Olivet Discourse, that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now remember in chapter 21, when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, lowly riding on a donkey, that it marked the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. It was also the beginning of Passover week in Jerusalem as pilgrims would be pouring into the city to celebrate the Feast of Passover. Now, the exact timetable of events in this final week have been discussed and debated among Bible teachers and scholars. Here, after he finishes the Olivet Discourse, speaking to his disciples on the Mount of the Olives about the signs of his coming, the end of the age, he says, now two days is the Passover, and I'm going to be delivered up to be crucified. Now, everybody pretty much agrees that his triumphal entry was on Sunday and that his resurrection was the following Sunday. We know that because the Bible tells us that he rose on the first day of the week. Now, traditionally, and there are those who believe that Jesus was crucified on Friday. There are those who say that he was actually crucified on Wednesday. But the thing to remember in our society is we start a new day at midnight, don't we? But in the Jewish culture, it starts at sundown. So anything before sundown is considered a day, and anything after sundown is considered another day. Now, you might recall that when the religious leaders came to Jesus, they said, show us a sign. And Jesus said, no sign's going to be given to you except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So with Jesus saying that, some scholars believe that Jesus was actually crucified on Thursday. Then after three days and three nights, you have the first day of the week, Sunday, and even putting Jesus' crucifixion there on that day, Thursday. So there's a debate on all that, and it's a study for another time. The important thing is that Jesus did die for our sins on the cross of Calvary, that he did rise again on the first day of the week. Now, as far as the Passover feast, you probably know that it was a yearly event, one of the major feasts that the Jews would celebrate, and it commemorated the delivery of God's people from Egypt. So Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified on Passover. This is the sixth time that we've read recorded in Matthew's gospel that it is recorded him saying to his disciples that I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the elders and I'm going to be put to death. Then the chief priests, as we continue reading here in the chapter, describes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Interesting that the high priest Caiaphas, the religious leaders, all come to the place of Caiaphas, 
And they're thinking, they're plotting, they're planning. How can we put Jesus to death? They've been wanting to do this for a while now, ever since Jesus' Galilee ministry. And if you were here a couple weeks ago, when we went over Mark chapter 3, the man with the withered hand there in the synagogue, Matthew also records that event. The religious leaders had been disputing with Jesus and his disciples concerning the Sabbath. You guys are breaking the Sabbath because you're out in the fields and you're, you know, plucking the heads of grain. And then they went into the synagogue. They're watching Jesus who came into that synagogue to see if he would heal a man with a withered hand. They wanted to accuse him and they had one of their rules. There's to be no healing on the Sabbath day. And of course, Jesus healed that man with the withered hand. And Mark's narrative tells us that from that time, it was the Pharisees and the Herodians that had planned that they were going to put him to death. We also know that the other religious leaders of the other groups, the scribes, the Sadducees, the others, join in all together in wanting to put Jesus to death. So here is the religious leaders. They're wanting to, to figure out how can we do this, but we cannot do this on the feast because of the uproar of the people. They were afraid of the people, and they're planning. They're thinking maybe we can do this by trickery. Maybe we can accuse him, trick him, and take him. And the thing to remember is that Jesus was not tricked into being crucified. He really was not the victim of someone who betrayed him. Yes, he is betrayed. We're going to read about that, Judas, the betrayer, uh, someone who uh, was handed over because of that betrayal. Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. He is in control of the situation. And as you go through the Gospels, particularly John's Gospel, that at this time Jesus is beginning to tell his disciples that the hour has come. The hour has come for me to be delivered up. This is why I came, the Passover lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And he is the one that is telling his disciples here at this point, after he gives that last teaching to them uh, in, in the Olivet Discourse, that in two days at Passover, I will be crucified. Not that I might be crucified or I'll be tricked into it. He says, it is certain. Now the religious leaders trying to plot here, planning. I can just picture them all together. They're arguing. They're, they're thinking. Maybe we can do this. Planning. Being very careful if we're precise. And all these thoughts. But we can't do it. We just can't do it because it's the feast. Jesus said it will happen during the feast of Passover. It was important that Christ was crucified on Passover because he is our Passover lamb. And you might recall, as you read the book of Exodus, that God sent ten plagues upon Egypt in order that they might be set free from Egypt, from their bondage and from the slavery of Egypt. And the final plague was this, that there is going to be the death of the firstborn in every home that was not marked with the blood from the lamb, the Passover lamb that was sacrificed. And they took the blood of that Passover lamb. They would mark the uh, doorposts and the lentils, the basin beneath, with the blood of that lamb, which, by the way, would form a cross. And the angels, seeing the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, would then pass over those homes that were marked. And Jesus says, I am the Passover lamb slain from the foundation of the world, whose blood would make atonement for sin, and we are saved from death. So the Father, he is the one that is determining when his son should be crucified, not the religious leaders. They didn't want it to be on the feast. 
Jesus said it will be on the feast. Let's continue reading in verse 6. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Now Simon would be one that had this dreadful disease of leprosy. That's why he's called the leper. And he would be, it is believed, healed by Jesus. Because if he had leprosy, he wouldn't have a house. He wouldn't be able to live in, in Bethany, that little uh, town on the side of the Mount of Olives, not far from Jerusalem. It was called the town of Mary. He would have to be in isolation. <coughs> he would live in, an, in a leper colony. And as he's healed by the Lord, he's back in this village. He has a house. And in that house, we read in verse 7, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask, a very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. So as Jesus is there in, in Bethany, the house of Mary, the house uh, or the town of Mary in the house of Simon the leper, a woman comes in and anoints Jesus with some very costly fragrant oil. Now we do know from John's gospel, as he gives us details of this account, that this was Mary, the sister of Martha, a very special family to Jesus, uh, Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And as we looked at Mary in the Gospels, we see her at the feet of Jesus. And I believe that she is a wonderful example of one who is a worshiper. Remember Luke chapter 10? We see her at the feet of Jesus, just taken in, worshiping while her, her sister Martha was in the kitchen cooking. And Martha ended up being all uptight and distracted, and she stressed out. And she says, Lord, you tell my sister to get in here and help me. And Jesus answered and said, Martha, Martha, you're busy and troubled by many things. She has picked the better part. Now, Jesus was not saying that serving him is, is not important or is not a blessing to the Lord. But what can happen is this, and the Lord has shown me this very thing in my life over and over again, even recently, that we can get so busy and we get so distracted. And, and the Lord has said to me, Jeff, listen, right now I'm not interested in your busyness. I know you got things to do, things that need to be taken care of, and we all do. But the times that, that we are so distracted can take us away from the Lord. And the Lord says, listen, I want to spend time with you. I want you to sit at my feet, to have closeness and intimacy with him, to know him, to just spend that time in worship to him. And we see that Mary was one that, that did that. In John chapter 11, we see Mary once again at Jesus' feet, this time not taken in, but she's pouring out her heart to the Lord. If he had only been here, my brother Lazarus would not have died. If he'd only been here, Lord, as Lazarus laid in that tomb, and, of course, Jesus was the one that said, I am the resurrection and the life. And though he may die, die, he who believes in me shall live. And we know that it would be Lazarus that would be raised from that tomb. Here in Matthew chapter 26, a short time later, we see her again at the feet of Jesus, pouring out this ointment on his head, this special, beautiful woman who is found at the feet of Jesus. Times of gladness and times of sadness. In times of wondering, you've come to Jerusalem to die and to be buried. And that's why she was doing this. So she takes this ointment and broke the flask and poured the whole quantity upon him. 
ointment that was very expensive, very costly, maybe bought in that area of India. And when she did this, verse 8, but when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, they were angry, saying, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. So the disciples, when they saw Mary break this box of expensive ointment and poured it on Jesus, Matthew tells us that they got upset. Now again, John's gospel gives us some further insight, and that being that when the fragrant oil uh, that was broken, first of all, it was worth about 300 denarii, nearly a whole year's worth of wages. A denarii was a day's wage. So in today's economy, that fragrant oil would have been worth thousands of dollars. That's why they believe it came from that area of India. So John also tells us that it was Judas Iscariot that he's the first one that piped up. He was the most indignant, upset, taken back by this act of worship by Mary. And Judas, right away, he says that that fragrant oil could have been sold and given to the poor. But John tells us that Judas didn't care about the poor. But Judas, being the treasurer, he kept the money and he was robbing from it. He just wanted more money in which he could take. He did not care about the poor. And Jesus later on will call him the son of perdition, the the son of waste. And we will see that Judas Iscariot wasted his life betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But I want to point something out here that I think is worth considering and and, and for us to, to just be ones that are discerning as we travel through life. It was Judas that made the statement, hey, it could have been sold, given to the poor. He was not sincere. He's stealing the money. He had his own agenda. But Matthew here indicates that all the disciples, then they ended up being upset. When they heard Judas make that statement that that's a waste, they joined together and said, you know, that's right. That fragrant oil could have been, you know, better used sold and given to the poor. And they were probably sincere. We know that Judas, he was not sincere. The point is simply this. One thing that I have learned in, as I get older in life, in my years of ministry, and I think that a lot of us have, is that the one who makes the most noise, the one who complains the most, the one who's the loudest, they may sound sincere, but they are not always Sincere. That's not always the case. And what can happen at times is the one who barks the loudest has a totally different agenda. They have their own agenda. And that was the case here. And they will try to get others to side with them in their false humility and sincerity. Judas didn't give a rip about the poor. And Jesus knew that. So we need to be careful and discerning when somebody's making a whole bunch of noise about things that are done or, or, you know, that could have been a better use or whatever the case may be. But another point quickly, this very beautiful, special woman of the gospel shows us that worship oftentimes comes through breaking. She broke that alabaster box of fragrant oil and poured it on him and anointed his feet. And John's gospel tells us that she wiped the feet of Jesus with her hair. And it is oftentimes we become worshipers of the Lord 
when we go through those times of brokenness, when things aren't going good, when you find yourself at the end of your rope, that is so often when we as believers, when we humble ourselves before the Lord and we worship, that there is a closeness and an intimacy that is very, very special. You know, David teaches us that, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And as you go through the psalms, and when I go through just a hard season or a difficult time or feeling down, I always return to the psalms. I read the psalms. And David, who is one who went through great difficulties, would find himself at the end of his rope. Matter of fact, I love what he writes in Psalm 61. When he's out there in the wilderness, and the future is uncertain for him, And he says, hear my cry, O God, and attend to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, it lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And he would just worship the Lord. And maybe, just maybe, there's somebody that you're here, that you're at the end of your world. And I want to encourage you, don't drift away from the Lord, because that can be the tendency to pull away from him. But in your brokenness, go to him. And you're going to see that the Lord's going to show up. And he's going to bless you and draw you to him. And you see, worship not only comes from brokenness, but worshiping with our own hearts. Know this, that it may be costly. It cost Mary here 300 denarii. So the question is, what will it cost you? What will it cost me? People may look at us as Christians and say, you're just wasting your time. What do you mean you have this, what is called devotions in the mornings? What do you mean you go to church on Sunday? What do you mean you go to Bible study after work? What do you mean that you sing to the Lord? People might look at you and say, what do you mean you lift your hands to the Lord? You're actually singing? You're weird. There's nothing weird or wrong or uncool about worshiping the creator of the universe to worship him, given that expression of adoration to him. We can live in such a self-consuming society. We think everything's for us. You know, the songs are for us, and worship was okay or so-so, or I loved it or I didn't like it, whatever. Listen, worship is about him, blessing him, giving to him a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of something that cost me something. And when we come at it with that mindset and that heart, know that you're going to get something back, and that is blessing, that the Lord's going to touch you, that we do worship because it is for Him. And if we come into this place and worship with that heart, that is, we're worshiping in spirit and truth, then it's been a good worship service. And so the bottom line is worship always is beneficial And Mary, in this act of worship, wiped the feet of Jesus with her hair, as John says, and she would take on the same fragrance as Jesus. We know that as we are worshiping the Lord, that you're going to take on the fragrance of the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us, as Paul writes, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ. Whatever state that you're in, whether you're parents with kids or you're single, whatever it might be, 
what kind of fragrance are we taking on? Do we go around saying, life stinks? You know, work stinks, the boss stinks, tired of this, tired of that, of that situation, complaining and murmuring all the time. Mom and dads, are the kids falling apart? Tension in the family, fighting. I tell you what, we learn from Mary. And what you do this holiday season, Thanksgiving and Christmas, and every day, that you gather the kids and you say, let's stop and let's seek the Lord's blessing for a moment. And let's just sit at the feet of our Lord for a time. And I'll tell you this, I guarantee it'll happen. As you do that, your house is going to take on a whole different aroma and you will as well. It will take on an aroma of peace and joy and, and of just a countenance of light and love that will fill your home and fill your heart. The fragrance of his knowledge, to know by experience, to know him by the experience of worshiping him, taking in of him, knowing his word. You will take on the fragrance of Christ and it will be evident in your home. And it will be evident to others that are linked to you in your life. Lesson, precious people, we don't have to walk around all the time saying, life stinks and everything stinks. We are blessed because we have the Lord. And I know it's been hard and it's been difficult and challenging. We see the things around us and it bothers us. But take on the fragrance of Christ. And you'll see your heart will begin to be warmed and blessed in every way. So Jesus, knowing what his disciples are thinking here, verse 10, we continue reading, but when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. And as surely I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. So Jesus immediately defends Mary's act of worship and devotion. Leave her alone. Don't bother her. The poor you will always have, but me, I'm going to die soon. She's doing this for my burial. Now, that is interesting to me because she understood. The disciples, they didn't understand at this time. They missed it. She understood that he was going to die. Yet she did not spend as much time with Jesus as the disciples. She didn't hear all of the teachings that the disciples did, the miracles that they saw. And yet the disciples, as they were told six times up to this time that Jesus was going to be crucified, handed over to the chief priests and leaders, but I'll rise again after three days, they're confused. They're confused at this time. They have no understanding what is going on. But yet she understood and anointed him. She, and he said, she did it for my burial. Listen, when you sit at the feet of Jesus, when you're taking in the word of God, and as you are going to him and worshiping him, listening to the still small voice of the Lord, you are going to understand things and see things better and clearer than others will miss. And maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I don't understand things very well. I don't see him clearly. Things are confusing. Take the time to sit at his feet 
And then you will be amazed at what he will reveal to you and what you will begin to understand. And in verse 14, then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests. Judas means praise. He wasn't a worshiper of the Lord. He was a thief and a betrayer. Now, it's believed that he came from a little town of Kerioth, which is in the southern region of Israel. The people there were, were generally more wealthy, educated. Uh, the people up in Galilee were looked down upon, the fishermen, the ones who worked the land. And as we see that Judas here, as he's going to do this act of betrayal, we know that Judas, he probably was one that was very smart. He's very sharp. He seemed to have it together. Hey, he's smart. This guy is resourceful. He's trustworthy. That's why they made him the treasure. He held the money bag. Don't picture Judas as just having these shifty eyes and a twitchy mustache and a hideous laugh, and he's kind of rubbing his hands. Ha, ha, ha. No, he's a leader. Let's make him the treasurer. And Judas, verse 14, now goes to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they count, counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. This is a sad commentary on Judas Iscariot. This moment when he goes to the chief priests and he says, What will you give me if I deliver him into your hands? Mark's gospel records that they were glad when he did that because they're thinking this is our break. This is our break. This is what we've been waiting for. He'll betray him into our hands. We'll take him. We'll have this illegal trial at night. And then early in the morning, hand him over to the Romans. He'll be Rome's problem. This is what we've been waiting for. We won't have to worry about the people. Judas came to them to deliberately to betray Jesus. And there are some Bible teachers that will try to excuse Judas. Well, he didn't know what he was doing. He really didn't intend evil against Jesus. He was mistaken. He was trying to force Jesus to utter, usher in the kingdom. In this account, he went to the religious leaders with the purpose of having Jesus be delivered to them and to receive money, to receive a payoff. And Jesus said of Judas that it would have been better if he'd never been born. We know in John's gospel, in chapter 6, I believe, that Jesus said, one of you, as he's talking to his disciples, is the devil. He's speaking of Judas. But as we, we continue this morning, verse 17, now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. And I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So the other Gospels give us some insight. Luke tells us it was Peter and John whom the Lord sent to prepare the Passover, and that the man that they were looking for would be carrying a pitcher of water. Now, at that time, in that culture, it was unusual for a man to be carrying a pitcher of water, so he would stand out. You follow him, speak to him. He'll show you an upper room where you can prepare the Passover. And verse 20, when evening had come, he sat down with the 12. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? Again, not everyone says, 
One's going to betray you. Oh, it's got to be Judas over there. He's had a bad attitude lately. Come on, Judas, confess up. They had no clue. And what intrigues me is the disciples that we have seen up to this point, and they even continued on this night, that they were arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. But at this moment, that wasn't their mindset. And I think that it's good for us to consider this in response that we see here, because I believe there's an important principle here, and that is as you and I mature in the Lord, as we grow in the word of the Lord, we should be growing in humility and sincerity. It's no longer, look how great I am. It can't be me. Hey, I'm really spiritual. I'm really special. I really have it together. But our attitude begins to change that, Lord, is it I? Lord, here's my heart. And you search me and you try me. And you become aware of his wonderful grace in your life and your need for him. And we don't go around boasting in our greatness and looking at how everybody else falls short compared to me. And he answered and he said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. And the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, You have said it. I think that verse 24 is probably one of the most sobering words Jesus would speak to any individual. It would have been better if you had never been bored, the one who betrays me. We can think that this is pretty harsh of Jesus to say, but I think that Jesus is displaying his love for Judas. I think that Jesus' hand of acceptance would be reached out if Judas would repent. He's trying to give him a chance to repent, clear up until the time that he's taken and betrayed. Sometimes people don't like the fact that Jesus would speak harsh words or that he spoke of hell and everlasting punishment. But he does that because of his love and being honest to us. A life truly that is wasted. A life that will be separated from him if we don't turn to him and come to him. And the love that's been provided as he went to the cross and died for our sins. The words that seem to be harsh is because the Lord loves us. And it's not harsh. It's grace. To turn to me, sit at my feet, know me. The blessings, the forgiveness, everlasting life promised to us. And what a wonderful, wonderful thing that our Lord would care enough about us. As Jesus here gives the words of truth throughout this gospel and to you and to me. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can have the record straight for us that your son came to die for our sins. And even as he would say that if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And there are those who think that's harsh, but that's the truth. Jesus made provision for forgiveness of sin, and we're so grateful for that. And here we come together we acknowledge that and celebrate that. But I do want to pray if there's anyone listening here in the sanctuary or online or maybe later on the radio that you have not given your heart to Jesus Christ and asked for forgiveness. That's why he came, to die on the cross at Calvary for you, for your sins. And he says, come this morning. I love you. That's why he went to the cross, died for your sins, rose from the grave 
so that you can have forgiveness, right relationship with the Father that only comes through Jesus Christ, and that you can have the hope of eternal life. You come and believe, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in, in your heart that God raised him from the dead, because with the mouth, you're just confirming what is in your heart. That you can pray right now, sincerely where you're at, that Jesus, I come to you and I ask. If you've never done this, never asked him into you, your life and heart as Lord and Savior for forgiveness of sin, today is the day of salvation. Lord, I do ask that you forgive me. I believe you died on the cross for me. You rose again. You're alive. And I ask that you forgive me of my sins. and Be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for hearing my prayer, for forgiving me and bringing me into the family of God and the hope of eternal life. And I do want to know you and walk with you, sit at your feet all the days of my life, in Jesus' name. And for all of us, that we would be worshipers, sitting at your feet, taken in. And Lord, to give a sacrifice of praise unto your name. So we learn from Mary, this example, beautiful example the one who would give a sacrifice of praise unto your name, to sit at your feet and to take in. And Lord, I just pray that you'd bless everyone here this week. Again, we just commit all these things to you and what you're showing us, how you're working in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?